And that is, he was one who God speaks to him, and then he speaks for God to the people. Sometimes God asked his prophets to speak in ways um, that were more than words. They were object lessons with powerful and sometimes shocking imagery. Uh, at God's bequest, they would go to great lengths to communicate his. And that is, he was one who God speaks to him. And that is, he was one who God speaks to him. Meals baked over dung. Um, wearing a wooden yoke. Isaiah walked about naked for three years at God's direction. Lay on his left side for 390 days and then again on his right for 40 days, all the while bound with ropes. All of this, all of these parables at God's direction. Hosea's object lesson, given to him by God, was to come through his marriage. And the book of Hosea starts this way. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. See, at the beginning of Hosea's ministry, Israel was at the back end of a season of prosperity and, and peace, but the people were far from God. They've been described as being in a spiritual stupor, riddled with sin and idolatry. And into this milieu with shocking clarity, God told Hosea to marry a prostitute. Not, not in some figurative way, not, not in some symbolic way, but to actually, literally marry a prostitute. D.A. Carson says, when the Lord first speaks to Hosea, his language is blistering. Some Bible translations read, go and marry a promiscuous woman. He said, that's too tame. The Jerusalem Bible is closer to the Hebrew. Go marry a whore and get children with a whore. For the country itself has become nothing but a whore by abandoning Yahweh. That's shocking. And it says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, these were the words he spoke. And you get the sense this was at least very early in Hosea's ministry. Maybe the first time God spoke to him, this is what he heard. And I'm sure Hosea is double-checking his sources and thinking, really? Really, my first message from the Lord, and it's marry a whore? How about just a simple repent, the end is near? Some suggest that his wife was not yet a prostitute, but that it was predictive of what she would become. And honestly, 
I'm not sure even if that were the case that that's any great consolation to be told by God, marry this girl, yeah, marry the one that will become a prostitute. That doesn't seem like any great comfort. Think about it. Um, Hi, Mom and Dad. There's someone I want you to meet. This is the girl God told me to marry. Gomer is not a reformed prostitute. That would at least have had a redemptive twist to it. She is one who is active in the profession, best we can tell. So I'm sure against the counsel of all his friends and family and in a stunning act of obedience to God and love for this, for this woman, Hosea takes a prostitute named Gomer to be his bride, and he loves her. The Scriptures tell us that he loves her. And then she bears three children. She bears three children. And if, you were to, if we were to have time this morning to read the entirety of the first chapter, you would find out that these three children had extraordinary names. Some of your Bibles preserve them. Jezreel, Lo-Ruhamah, and Lo-Ami. And if you are expecting children, these are not names that should be on your list. These are names that are symbolic of God's judgment upon His people for their unfaithfulness. It's interesting, only one of those three children, the first one, does it say that Gomer bore to Hosea. The latter two, the story simply says that she bore them. Were they not his? You know, when you're married, I imagine when you're married to a woman like this, you never really know. But their names give us a hint. The third child, who's a son, his name is Loami, which means not my people. Some have suggested the idea is no kin of mine. And that not only does he symbolize Israel's alienation from Yahweh, but he also may have exposed Gomer's sinful escapades. And that son born in Hosea's house was likely not his own. Yet all the indications are Hosea loves her. In spite of her dalliances and rendezvous, her betrayals, he loves her. But then to add in, insult to injury, um, it seems that she who has been so undeservedly loved leaves Hosea in spite of his love for her. She leaves him in search of other lovers. And the language Hosea uses to write about Gomer's actions as she represents Israel, God's people, is graphic. In the second chapter, which focuses on Israel that Gomer represents, Hosea writes, their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And so now it appears that atop all the other shame and rumor and um, such that's going on around this marriage, now he bears the shame of desertion to top all others. All the doubts, all the questioning, all the bitterness, all the anger, what is a prophet supposed to do? 
when deserted by a wife whom he had loved so faithfully. Well, God speaks to him again, and a way is made clear as to what he must do. And in some senses, in some sense, this must have been even a more difficult message than the first. We find it in the third chapter of Hosea, the first verses. It says, the Lord says to me, Hosea writes, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and, and loves cakes of raisin. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethek of barley. Hosea is commanded by God to pursue his wayward bride and buy her back. That, that language of purchase says, so I bought her, cracks open the door and lets us just get a glimpse into a room where, where Gomer might have descended to. Did Hosea have to wander the streets at night from alley to alley and brothel to brothel trying to find his bride? Is that where he found her? Enslaved to another man? Used by other men? Or was it during the daytime down, down at an auction? where she was wearing the garb of a whore or the rags of a harlot used up, perhaps even there naked before all the men of the city? You can imagine Hosea there, standing and participating in the bidding to buy his own wife back. Because of his love for God and for her, he wins the bidding, and he takes her home again to love her still. Why? Why would God require his prophet to marry a prostitute? Why would God have him pursue her when, he, when she has been so publicly unfaithful? Look again with me at that first verse in chapter 3. The Lord says to Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Hosea, Hosea, is a walking portrait of what God's love is like towards His own people, towards us. See, God is asking Hosea to model His love for us. And in the story, Hosea is like God, right? Now, can you guess who we are like? Can you find yourself in the story? And if Hosea is like God, there aren't very many options left, right? We are like Gomer. 
Now, most of us would resist the description of unfaithful, let alone the title of prostitute. But the Bible uses that language when it talks about the fact that we've all been wayward and unfaithful to God spiritually. Isaiah said that we have turned every one to our own way. Paul simply says, we all have sinned. Mark Shipp wrote an article about this, this um, section of Hosea, and in it he helps us think about how the idolatry of God's people in their day might relate to us in ways that we're not mindful of. He says, lest we miss the point for our own day, I think it is important to emphasize that idolatry is not only a primitive practice, long gone from our enlightened age. Modern idolatry is all the more seductive because of its subtlety. The ancients personified and deified natural forces and human phenomena beyond their control. Through sacrifice, prayer, and sympathetic enactment, the gods, little g, could be appealed to for help with economic, personal, or political needs. It wasn't that they had abandoned completely the worship of Yahweh. It was that Yahweh was good for matters of national identity and morality, but when it came to the economy, family, health, security, and local politics, Canaanite deities seemed to speak to these more directly. He says, I do not think it's greatly different in our own day. Most Americans believe in God, most even consider themselves Christians, but Wall Street, Washington, Hollywood, the Federal Reserve Bank, the Pentagon, and a host of insurance and investment companies speak to daily issues and crises in a practical way. And we tend to trust these as idols more implicitly than we do the true provider of ancient Israel and the modern church. Israel had forgotten that it was the Lord who was the provider of her blessings. In chapter 2, verse 8, speaking of Israel, Hosea writes, She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they then used for Baal, one of the Canaanite gods. Just a few verses farther in verse 13 of chapter 2, we read, I will punish her, God says, for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. See, Israel's sin at its core was that she forgot God. She just forgot him, and she trusted elsewhere. She looked elsewhere for her great satisfaction. See, we are like Gomer, like Israel, more, more than we would like to admit. And Hosea, by his marriage to wayward Gomer, shows us what God's love is like for us, even for us. See, God's is a love for us that chooses the undeserving, that chooses the likes of us, not because of who we are, more in spite of who we are. 
and who we have become and what we have done. See, God's choosing us in love perhaps isn't best described as unconditional. Some have suggested it's best described as contra-conditional, against the condition of our lives and our hearts. D.A. Carson describes it in a way that's always helped me. He says, um, picture Charles and Susan walking down a beach hand in hand at the end of the academic year. The pressure of the semester has dissipated in the warm evening breeze. They have kicked off their sandals and the wet sand squishes between their toes. Charles turned to Susan and gazes deeply into her large hazel eyes and says, Susan, I love you. I really do. What does he mean? Well, Carson says in this day and age, he may mean nothing more than that he feels like testosterone on legs and wants to go to bed with her forthwith. But if we assume he has even a modicum of decency, let alone Christian virtue, the least he means is something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile smiles me and it lights and smites me, he says, from 50 yards. Your sparkling good humor, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, everything about you transfixes me. I love you. What he most certainly does not mean is something like this. Susan... Quite frankly, you have a bad case of halitosis. It would embarrass a herd of unwashed garlic-eating elephants. Your nose is so bulbous, you belong in the cartoons. Your hair is so greasy, it could lubricate an 18-wheeler. Your knees are so disjointed, you make a camel look elegant. Your personality makes Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan look like wimps. But I love you. He says, so now God comes to us and says, I love you. What does he mean? Does he mean something like this? You mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you transfixes me. Heaven would be boring without you. I love you. He says that, after all, is pretty close to what some therapeutic approaches to the love of God spell out. We must be pretty wonderful because God loves us. And dear old God is pretty vulnerable finding himself in a dreadful state unless we say yes. When he says he loves us, does not God rather mean something like the following? Morally speaking, you are the people of the halitosis, the bulbous nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knees, the abominable personality. Your sins have made you dis disgustingly ugly but I love you anyway. Not because you are so attractive, but because it is my nature to love. So, when God says, I will take for myself a wife, and he chooses us, his church, to be his bride, he does it with his eyes wide open, knowing our bent to be unfaithful spiritually, to go our own way. But God chooses differently than we do. He chooses those He knows will fail Him, those who have already failed Him. It's interesting, in, in Deuteronomy, God talks about why He chose Israel, the little people of Israel, to be His, His own. He says, no, therefore... 
that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. He chooses in spite of, not because of. Craig Larson um, described an ad for the U.S. Marines that pictures a sword and beneath it, or rather above it, the words earned, never given. He says, if you want to become a Marine, be prepared to earn that name through sacrifice, hardship, and training. If you get it, you deserve it. He says, but if you want to become a Christian, you must have the exact opposite attitude, for the message of the gospel is given, never earned. Hosea's God, Gomer's God, our God, loves the undeserving. If the opening chapters of the book of Hosea teach us anything about God, they teach that. He loves the undeserving. With an unexplainable love, God chooses us. Not because we are so successful and beautiful and talented. He does not wait until after we've gotten our act together, but loves and chooses us in our fallenness, in our brokenness, in our sinfulness. While we were still active in the profession, we could say. Even then, especially then, He loves us and He chooses us. Years ago, there was a 10-year-old girl that wrote this sorrowful note in a Dear Abby column. All my life, she says, I've been chosen last. Why don't they just hang a sign on me that says, reject? Last one to pick gets me. And Hosea says that God sees our sign, takes it from our necks, and in love, He chooses even us. To know the love of God as Father is to know what it means to be chosen when we do not deserve it, to be loved in spite of, not just because of. His is a love that chooses the undeserving, and it's a love that pursues relentlessly. You see this in the verse we've been looking at in Hosea chapter 3. The Lord said to Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Go again, God says. So when Gomer leaves... Hosea pursues. He never gives up. He never stops loving. He loves in spite of her betrayal, in spite of her unfaithfulness, ungratefulness, and abandonment. See, because according, according to um, the early chapter of Hosea, chapter 1, and in chapter 2, where Israel and, Hosea, and, and Gomer are linked, it says, upon her children, God says, also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. They were children that did not belong to him. In the next verse, we see that their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. She has 
sought sustenance and satisfaction from these lovers, these other lovers as well. And now after all this is made explicit, after all this is known about Gomer, God says to Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Yet in spite of what she has done or what others will think or what they would advise, Hosea lovingly pursues her because he is to love her as the Lord loves the children of Israel. And God's love is a love that pursues, that is relentless, that never gives up. I love, I love the way John Ortberg helps us think about it. He, he compares it to the game of hide-and-seek. He says hide-and-seek is a simple game. One person seeks, everyone else hides. Hence the name. It is most fun for those who hide. When you hide, you choose where you go. When you hide, you get to keep your eyes open. Those who hide are in control. Everyone wants to hide. The hard job is to be the seeker. The seeker deliberately allows those who hide to get away. The seeker places herself in the humble position of searching on and on for people who deliberately evade her, who laugh at her. No one wants to be the seeker. The one who searches does not even get, get much of a title. In other games, the pivotal player at least gets a high-profile name, the center, the pitcher, the goalkeeper. The one who searches in this game is simply called it. Not Captain It, not Chief Executive It, just It. In fact, the call that starts the game is simply, not It. Just whoever is It will have to be very patient. It will have to search long and hard. It will have to face evasion and trickery. He says the story of God and the human race is a story of hide and seek. Only we get confused sometimes about who is it. God is it. And God's seeking, according to Hosea, is strong and relentless. We would call it tough love. His seeking is no children's game. We see this in the names of Gomer's children in the first chapter. Jezreel. Lo Ruhamah and Lo Ami. And D.A. Carson explains the meaning of those names this way. He says, Jezreel is a name that can be associated with a particular meaning, sowing or scattering. But above all else, it was the name of a town where the house of Yehu formerly massacred so many people. He said it would be like naming a child Chernobyl or Hiroshima or Soweto. Everyone knows the connection. Of the remaining two children, the first is called Loruhama, which means not loved or not pitied. The second is called Loami, which means not my people. He says the lessons are explicit. God will no longer love or pity Israel, and he will declare in verse 9 of the first chapter, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now, it's natural to wonder, how is this, this strong language of judgment that's in the first and second chapters of Hosea, so clearly against God's people, how is that loving? 
And it's important to realize that as you read through these chapters, and I encourage you today, read through all three chapters. It'll take you 15 minutes. Read through all three chapters. And you'll see that judgment is not God's end game with his people. Listen to the very next verse after he says, you are not my people and I am not your God. He says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Hosea's firstborn. Sounds a lot like Israel. If you read on down at the end of chapter 2, and those three names, those three names of judgment upon Gomer's children are redeemed. It's fascinating. I will sow, sowing, the name of the firstborn, I will sow her for myself in the land, God says, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. That's God's end game. If you look down chapter 2, you'll see that behind those severe judgments was a redemptive purpose, a loving purpose. In verses 6 and 7, God says, therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths, paths to her lovers. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. And then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. The judgment comes to turn them back to him. Even his harsh judgments are a part of his rescuing love. Hosea is acting out here for all to see the truth that God lovingly pursues us, relentlessly seeks after us with the hardest of love, if necessary, to restore us to a right relationship with Him. His is a love that chooses the undeserving and never gives up. It pursues. And, and it pays a great price. Back in those early verses in Hosea 3, the Lord said to Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, an idolatrous act of worship at their image. And Hosea says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethek of barley. Some have suggested that that's the price of a female slave, but it's interesting to me that only half the price is paid in silver. And I wonder why. It doesn't say why, but I wonder why. Why not pay it all in silver? And I wonder if it's because he didn't have it all in silver. I wonder if he scraped together everything he had, every last coin, and he knew it wasn't going to be enough. So then he goes to the pantry, and he raids the pantry, and he gathers anything of value. 
And he takes all that he has. And he buys her back. Hosea is loving Gomer the way God has loved us. Right? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still wayward, while we were still spiritually unfaithful, a great price was paid. The greatest price was paid. Christ died for us. Listen again to John Ortberg as he talks about this hide-and-seek way that God loves us. He says, at the end of the game, if someone hides too well, it will yell the words that end the game. It cups its hands and hollers so that the cry can be heard through the whole neighborhood. Ali, ali, oxen free. He says, no one knows quite where this chant came from or what it originally meant. It says, Latin, perhaps, for liberate the oxen? Um, but hiders know what it means. You can come home. You're safe. You will not be chased or hurt or penalized. You can return like the prodigal son coming home to the fatted calf. Stop hiding. Come home. It is a cry of grace. To all who want to hide, who need to be sought, who are confused about being found, God has spoken in Jesus Christ. Ali, ali, oxen free. God says, come out, come out wherever you are. The time for hiding is over. No penalties. No punishment. No getting caught. Just come home. The time for coming home has arrived. Trust me. Trust me, God says. This is why Hosea pursued Gomer and brought her back. This is why Christ had to suffer and die by his death to buy us back, to make a way for undeserving people like you and me to know the love of God, the costly, seeking, undeserved love of God. Nancy Guthrie has written, God has loved you. When you were not even looking for him, he chose you and determined to make you his own. He wooed you to himself with gospel promises of mercy instead of punishment, belonging instead of estrangement. He loved you by redeeming you from your enslavement to all lesser lovers. And he is loving you even now as he cuts away from your character every lingering tether to your old way of life. So today, let me invite you, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Turn away from those lesser loves and embrace the love of God for you, who loves you even though you don't deserve it, and who's been pursuing you and has paid the great price to buy you back. Come to Christ. Turn from your sins and come to Christ. 
And if you have never done that, know that today at the close of our service, our elders are down in front, and we would just like to pray with you about that and be an encouragement to you about that. But for those who are already followers of Jesus, we come to Christ and we meet him at this table. Invited as children, children of the Father, to share a meal, communion with him, and celebrate together. Remember together the costly, relentless love of God for the undeserving, for you and for me. And so, let's prepare our hearts for the table.